Well, I should begin by saying I have mixed feelings about what we're about to do. And I think you're going to have mixed feelings about what we are going to do. And that's because we're looking at the end of the 26th chapter of the gospel according to Matthew. And that means we're getting really close to the cross when it comes to the life and ministry of Jesus. That means we are looking at betrayal. It means we are looking at Jesus being tried by corrupt leaders and found guilty though he's innocent. And so we're about ready to look at the darkest of times. We're going to look at something that is heinous, something that is disgusting, something that is awful, dreadful, perverse, on so many different levels. It is dark. It only gets darker when Jesus actually goes to Calvary. And yet I said mixed feelings because we know how it ends. We are people who read the Bible and we know how it ends. Not only that, we've already heard Jesus say in the same context at the Last Supper, do this in remembrance of me, the tearing of his flesh and the shedding of his blood. We already know, according to Jesus, that this is a new covenant reality, what human history has been waiting for, what all of human history will look back to. And so there's a sweetness because we know even amidst all of this heinousness, Jesus is doing what he is doing on purpose. Yes, at the hands of sinful human beings, but this is orchestrated. Jesus is going through what he's going through according to his purposeful plan. And I'm not trying to be emotionally manipulative, but he's doing what he is doing for everyone who will ever trust in him for salvation. And that includes you if you're trusting in him. Personally, what he is going to face, he's facing on purpose so that he can be, so that he will show himself to be the Passover lamb, slaughtered, slain to make atonement. And he's doing it because he loves us, the Bible says, and gives himself up for us. And so all kinds of Emotional turmoil happen inside my person, <laughs> in my heart and in my head because there's something about this that I hope you're disgusted by. It's disgusting what sinners are doing to Jesus. But at the same time, when you look to Jesus, you say, thank you. This is amazing what's happening here. Our text is Matthew 26, verses 57 to 75. Uh, the outline I'm going to follow, if you're a note taker or an outline follower, I'm one myself. Two tragic scenes. Two tragic scenes that anticipate the cross. Two tragic scenes that anticipate the cross and beg us to put our confidence in Christ. Two tragic scenes that anticipate the cross and beg us 
to trust in Christ and not in institutions, even if the right, the right institutions, and not human beings, even if they're the most faithful human beings other than Christ. It's going to be good. It's a great text. It's a great drama. Hope you're encouraged. I hope you're troubled and then encouraged. But ultimately, we should say, I'm not going to trust in any institution, even the right one. And I'm not going to trust in any lesser human beings, even the very most faithful ones, because even they are not able to deliver. Christ and Christ alone can. First scene we're going to spend more time on than the second scene, lest you think we're going to be here till 6 p.m. We'll be out by 5.30 sharp, I promise. <laughs> I kid. I, I, I know. I know how it goes. You vote with your feet and your car keys and all that kind of stuff. So let's get right at it. First tragic scene begging us to put our confidence in Jesus rather than elsewhere. Number one, the scene is Jesus before the high priest. Jesus before the high priest. We see it in verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus... Earlier context tells us it's it's the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers assisting them, led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And we're going to go much faster on the other verses, but on this one we need to dig in just a little bit to paint the scene, to appreciate the scene. Here he is before Caiaphas. Other gospel accounts tell us, not Matthew, uh, one extra detail. Matthew doesn't think it's that important, so he leaves it out. That's how all the gospels function. But he's first taken to Annas, Caiaphas's father-in-law, who had been deposed as the high priest. And when he goes to Annas, then he goes to Caiaphas. So just adding that to fill in the flow for you just a little bit. And then I want to ask you to think with me a little bit about what a special person Caiaphas is. I wanted to call Caiaphas great, but then I was making it sound too positive. Let's call him special, okay? But he is great in a certain sort of nuanced sense. And I like to bring these things up because we might not think of it that way other than to think he's especially bad or heinous or he's great as in a bad, a bad actor. But let's think of Caiaphas as special on some different levels from, for some different reasons, And first of all, let's acknowledge that Caiaphas is special because he has learned how to stay in office for a long, 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 long time compared to other high priests. So he's a, he's a good politician if you can say those two words in the same sentence. He knows how to stay in office. He knows how to keep getting elected, if you will. He's been a high priest for some or he has been and will, if we look forward to, about 18 years. From AD 18 to AD 36, last I checked, and that is unprecedented. He hasn't been high priest for two years. That would be more along the norm, or for a few years, or for one year, or for less. He's been in office for 18 years. That means he is a good high priest, at least in some senses. It doesn't mean he's morally good, but he's good at this, unprecedentedly so. So he stands out for that reason. Also, another thing to notice about Caiaphas is Caiaphas says more than he even knows. He says more than he even knows. Matthew doesn't record this. John does. Listen carefully. 
Now Caiaphas, this is John 18. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for, get this, one man to die on behalf of the people. What a great substitutionary atonement declaration by the special high priest who is Caiaphas. Even if he didn't believe it like we believe it, he spoke greater than he even imagined because his theology was spot on and orthodox, even if he didn't believe it. Substitutionary atonement. Let him be that one. And then one other observation that's actually really important about Caiaphas being a special character, and that is that Caiaphas represents the end of the priesthood. The high, he, he's, he's the last legitimate, I'm going to put scare quotes in that, last legitimate high priest when it comes to chronology. So the priesthood is something God ordained, it's legitimate, and the office of high priest, God ordained, legitimate, And here we have the last high priest in Caiaphas before the, he's called the high priest. So I've got to say it a little bit, a little bit differently. He, Jesus, Jesus is the high priest who's the eternal high priest. So if John the Baptist were the forerunner, Caiaphas is the last runner. No, that, that doesn't, doesn't sound right. And it actually doesn't make logical sense, but you get the idea, right? The last of the prophets, John the Baptist, He's similar in this sense. John the Baptist was a good actor. Caiaphas isn't. But he's the last of the high priests. And therefore, all of the... I'm going to borrow from the imagery from the book of Hebrews. All of the other high priests who were shadows were anticipating the ultimate high priest who is the what? The substance. Again, borrowing from the book of Hebrews. All of the types, all of the, again, multi-syllable word, okay, but you came to church today, Omaha Bible Church, all the typological high priests, types, shadows, were always designed to anticipate one who would be legitimate, true, ultimate, the antitype fulfillment high priest, it's Jesus. So even though we would say Caiaphas is a bad actor, he's special, Okay, he he. When it comes to chronology and the unfolding drama of redemption, it's it's significant. Hebrews chapter. I promise we'll go faster on the other verses. That's not a chapter in Hebrews, but Hebrews chapter ten says this, verse eleven. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time, this is what's going to happen when he goes to the cross. A single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Anticipation, Caiaphas, and the long line who came before him. And now we have the one true faithful high priest, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6 even refers to him in those terms. Maybe one helpful quotation from someone commenting on Hebrews that might help you. And for the record, while the high priest served in the earthly sanctuary, standing to offer sacrifices year after year, Jesus has entered the heavenly sanctuary 
ascended. This is after his work is done post-ascension, but you get the idea. Jesus has entered the heavenly sanctuary, ascended to the right hand of the Father's throne, interceding for us as one seated after completing his work. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, Hebrews. Finally, he has entered with his own saving blood rather than the Here's our big word, typological blood of animals, which could never itself remove guilt. Hebrews 9 and 10. So Caiaphas is a big deal, even if you don't like him. And even if I don't like him, and even if he acts perversely against Jesus, he actually is an important figure. Do notice also with Caiaphas, we have the scribes, scholars, tell us that they represent perhaps bestly uh, the middle class of the Jews, the elders, more wealthy, influential Jewish lay leaders. Mark tells us that the chief priests, plural, are there because of the likes of Annas, who was the former high priest. Also, the commander of the temple guard might be under that umbrella, the steward of the temple under that umbrella, and the three temple treasurers perhaps also under that umbrella. That's why we have the plural in Mark. So the Jews are represented, right? There are the Jews, whether they're uh, on the payroll or they're the lay people, the Jewish people are represented there and Jesus is brought before them under the cloak of darkness. Now, let me ask you this question. What should they do? If we didn't know how it goes and we didn't know any more than this, Jesus is brought to the Jewish religious leaders. What should happen? Think about that for a moment. But before we move on, the camera zooms in or transitions over to Peter just for a moment and then we're going to come back to him. But just for a moment, let's quick look at Peter because that's what verse 58 does. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And sometimes we give Peter, Peter gets a bad rap, sometimes deservedly, sometimes not deservedly. Here, I'm not going to give him a bad rap. Where are all the other disciples? I reminded you last time that there used to be lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of disciples. Think John chapter 6. And then through trials and difficulty and controversies, we at least had the 12. Now Judas is out of the picture. We understand that. But now who is there, this guy who is going to betray Jesus? We're going to give him a deserved bad rap. But he's, he's there now. Remember, he, he, he committed that I'm going to be there no matter what, Jesus. I'm earnest in this. And, and he still looks pretty earnest at this point in time. Maybe there's been a little bit of back and forth. But I admire what he's doing here. Think how, how he must have been hurting watching all of this happen as someone who we do know genuinely, earnestly loved Jesus. And had come to believe that he is the Passover lamb. In a sense, it's watching as all of this corruption and perversion happens. In a sense, it's kind of like us watching as this corruption and perversion happens. Okay, now, away from that camera angle, we come back to the actual reason the religious officials uh, have brought Jesus. 
And it says, look at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony. Remember, I asked you to think, what should they be doing? What should they be thinking? It's not this. They're supposed to be the ones who are for the truth. They're truth brokers, right? They promote the truth about God and the worship of the one true God, Yahweh. And they oppose all who don't promote the truth. And and they're all about truth. That's what should be happening here. And I would like to push it a little further and ask you to think of these individuals, given that they're Jewish people, by conviction... That means they're for Messiah because if the Old Testament teaches anything, there's an expectation for an ultimate king, deliverer, savior, provider. That is Messiah. Oh, let's borrow the Greek word for it, not Messiah, Mashiach from Hebrew, but let's borrow the Greek word Christ. And for effect, therefore, let's call them Christians. At least professing Christians. Because they're Messiahans. And Christian and Messiah essentially mean the same thing, just in two different languages. So for dramatic effect, because I think it's meant to be there, these are the people who say they're Christians. Because they say they're Messiahans. They're men of the book. That is really troubling. That's really troubling. They profess. So here it says, now the chief priests and whole council were seeking false testimony. What should they have been doing? Bringing Jesus to say, we know you're the one. We've been waiting for you. Amazing that you are our deliverer, savior, provider. Finally, no more oppression. Finally, we can have confidence in you. You're the one all of human history has been waiting for. That's what should be happening by these Messiahans. Because he's the Messiah. But instead, our text says, seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. This is diabolical, this is perverted, this is twisted. I mean, if if this were trivial and it's not trivial, think the three little wolves and the big bad, big bad pig. There is such a book. I don't own it, but I'd kind of like to have it. The three little wolves and the big bad pig. That's not how that story goes. That that that's backwards. This whole thing. Now, let's move, let's get rid of the trivial. The most significant event in all of human, the most significant person in all of human history. Let's, let's find out things that aren't true about him so we can kill him. It it doesn't get more twisted than this. Verse 59 should read, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to see the amazing ways that Jesus fulfilled the Christological prophecies of the Old Testament that they might worship Him more fervently and trust in Him as their Savior. But instead it says, Seeking false testimony against Jesus Jesus, that they might put Him to death. Scandalous because of who they are. Scandalous because of what they're supposed to represent, truth and justice. Scandalous because of who Jesus is, the Christ, the Messiah. I remind you of chapter 23 
when Jesus unloads, unleashes, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. I think it's seven times he pronounces those pronouncements of official condemnation upon the Jewish people. And I think, if I recall correctly, I don't have a great memory, but he was primarily, primarily looking backward at all of the things they had seen and he'd come to all the wrong perverse conclusions. And so it's damn you, damn you, damn you, seven times officially because you've met the truth and you call him a lie, so to speak. And you've kept the people from me as well. And now, if you thought he was too harsh then, by looking back, well, now look, now look what's happening. It was for a good reason he said all of those woes. Because it doesn't get more wrong than this, more awful than this, more troubling than this. And to make things even all the clearer, notice what it says in verse 60. But they found none. They look for false testimony and they find no false testimony. Okay, case closed, free to go. We know that's not how it ends. Look for testimony, false testimony. None of the false testimony is going to pass the sniff test, so to speak, and look, a, look credible to the people. Well, it makes sense they can't find a false testimony against him that's going to stick, right? He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the law keeper, right? He's the just for the unjust. So First John has us covered. First Peter has us covered. Tried and tested in all things. Hebrews has us covered, with, yet without sin. It makes sense they, they, they can't legitimately call for him to be killed because he's never sinned. He's only ever done the right thing. For the first time ever in human history. Since the fall. Then verse 60 goes on to say, though many false witnesses came forward. Probably the stress there. Why do you think he says many false witnesses came forward? Probably because many false witnesses came forward. (laughs) But that's a far cry from not very long ago in chapter 21 where it's Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. Things have changed. The crowd, the fickle crowd has changed. And so they've got plenty of false witnesses. So lest we think somehow, you know what, there were a few bad apples. The emphasis, according to Matthew's gospel account, is that's not the case. You've got the high priest and all his clan group representation, and then you have the other religious leaders, whether they're the scribes or the Pharisees, and you have the people giving testimony, and it's not true testimony. It's no wonder that First John says what it says, that he came for his own and his own received him not. That's what's happening before our very eyes, and it's troubling. That's why we have mixed feelings about all this. How about verse 60, where it moves on toward the end there? At last, two came forward. The at last part makes me wonder, how long was this going on? But at last, two came forward. Verse 61 says, I hope you're paying attention to this because it's a big deal. 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now think with me about whether or not Jesus said that. But while you're thinking about that, think about, What a big deal it would be if he did say that. 
Because think about what a big deal the temple is in the life of the Jews. So tabernacle before, then temple. The temple is where what happens? The temple is where you go to uniquely meet with God. It's the unique presence of God symbolizing his blessing to be with his people. Oh, then you have priests and you have sacrifices so there can be forgiveness. Yes, types and shadows, but the Bible speaks of forgiveness. So you, you, you have to have the temple. Maybe, maybe it's an overstatement to say the temple is everything. I wouldn't say that, but the temple with, this of critical importance. It's no wonder they would consider it a, a, a crime of the most high-handed order if somebody was going to come and destroy the temple. How, how do you have legitimate functioning Judaism without the temple? So if Jesus, as some sort of criminal, for the sake of argument, some sort of warlord, came and said, my number one desire is to destroy this Jewish temple... It's no wonder they would be angry. I, I would say legitimately so. But Jesus isn't a warlord come to do that. Now I asked you a question earlier. I hope you still remember. Did Jesus ever say this, what they said he said? Not exactly. I guess it's where we should do the contest, right? If I had a $100 bill in my wallet, I have a 5 So whoever can find that exact verse where Jesus said that, I'll give you five bucks. Well, it's easy. It's an easy win, boys and girls, because you won't find that quotation. You get part of it in John 2. So keep thinking with me, if you would. This this destroy the temple and and rebuild it in three days. They're going to see that as horrible, terrible, awful, worthy of condemnation. But when we read the verse, and it says in verse 61, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God. And to rebuild it in three days, he didn't, he didn't say that exactly. Remember in John 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple. He didn't say he was going to do it. He said, you, if you do it, and in three days, I will raise it up. So it's a, I, I personally think it's a, it's a misquotation of the Bible like we do sometimes. Especially when we have a, a sinister motive. Uh, this is, this is where you go to, these guys went to satanic awana class. <laughs> How to memorize Bible verses out of context and or half correctly, okay? Well, they, they've got it partially right. But John in John chapter 2, we even learn that Jesus was basically saying, if, if you kill me, I'll raise myself up again. Referring to himself as the temple. Ah, Interesting. So they're, they're false witnesses. They're not true witnesses because they're not telling the truth. John 2 doesn't say what they say. But I would at least want to push this with you a little bit and think in terms of Matthew 23 and 24. What Jesus said is going to happen in the future as recorded in Matthew 23 and 24 is that what's going to happen? Among other things, the temple is going to be destroyed. Not a single stone is going to be left. And it's going to happen because of God's judgment. It's going to happen because if he's the Messiah, my judgment. Yes, it's going to happen via the hands of the Romans, at least in AD 70. Ultimately looking forward to something greater. But there's a sense in which it has been communicated. We have it on good authority, Matthew 24 and 25. That temple is going to be destroyed. 
not by a warlord, but by the one who is the ultimate temple. And so it doesn't make any sense to have this temple that served a temporary purpose to continue on. Pretty, pretty intriguing things to think about, I think. But their testimony wasn't true. I know their testimony wasn't true because we have it on good divinely inspired authority. Mark says in Mark fourteen fifty nine, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. You guys doing okay? This is all meant to elicit bad emotions. This is bad, terrible, horrific, perverse, twisted, heinous, and horrendous. But just remember that all of this is happening because Jesus is on mission to give himself up for us, the Bible says, as the one who is the new covenant lamb. Well, no doubt Caiaphas, the high priest, is miffed beyond measure at this point in time. He's going to try to get Jesus to say something self-incriminating. How about verse 62? And the high priest stood up, commentators tell us, out of the norm. The people stand out of respect to him. He sits because he rules. He's in charge of the temple, its protection, its promotion. He's the biggest religious bigwig around. And the high priest, now no doubt agitated, angry, stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? In other words, we might say he's saying what? Explain yourself. Talk. Dig yourself in. Then it says in verse 63, ooh, great drama, but Jesus remained silent. Maybe just a little reminder about who's in charge here, the high priest. Also, he's innocent. Also, he's above it all. He's in charge. He's in control. Isaiah 53 says he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. That's an atonement context, Isaiah 53, and it is all unfolding right here. How about let's keep going in verse 63. Look there if you would. And the high priest said to him, I, let's say it a bit stronger because of who he is. If he's Caiaphas, the high priest, the highest ranking official, I, I, the high priest, I, the high priest, I adjure you, I command you by the living God. I'm charging you because I'm the high priest, that I'm the highest actor, and I'm charging you under divine oath before God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I wrote in my margin, if he only knew how crazy this looks. I am the high priest. In the name of God Almighty, I command you. (laughs) Who's he talking to? Hebrews 6 would have us to know Jesus is the the high priest. (laughs) Not the typological, but the ultimate who came from heaven. 
You have no idea who you're dealing with here. But it's, it, it's meant to be ironic. Oh boy. If Jesus doesn't answer, he breaks the legally imposed oath. In a certain sense, he's respecting the office, I think. If he denies it, he's a liar, Jesus. If he affirms it, he's a dead man. We know how it's going to go. How about this is a great answer, as if Jesus wouldn't give a great answer, but this is so like Jesus. How about if we keep, uh, how about if we go to verse 64? Jesus said to him, You have said so. And let's just pause there for a moment. Leon Morris, the really good commentator on Matthew, says, I would not have put it that way. But since you do, I can't deny it. You have said so. By saying what he says there in verse 64, Jesus is affirming what Caiaphas says. But then notice what comes after the period. But I tell you. So you're, 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 you're right in the gist of it, but you know what? There's a whole lot more. And since you called me under oath, let me speak under oath. And this is just Pat's street smarts kid. Let me speak under oath, pal. <laughs> Not saying Jesus said that, but whatever he said, the way he, well, here's what he said, but he said it in all the right senses. Here, here you go under oath. How about 64? From now on, and I take it from this point onward until on the cross suffering, delivered over on the cross suffering, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. So that that seems very pregnant there from now on. So in other words, it could be starting now. I know that's how the Reformation Study Bible says it as well. I know some of you carry that. I think it captures the idea. From now on, starting now, you will see the Son of Man, the Messiah, seated at the right hand. Caiaphas knows exactly what he's saying. Seated, the one who's in authority, the one who's a king. And if you're the Son of Man, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, at the right hand, the place of prominence and preeminence, notice, of power. And coming on the clouds from where? From heaven. Divine origin, divine intent. It's no wonder that it says in Matthew 7, Jesus spoke like no one else spoke. I'm paraphrasing. He speaks as one having authority. Here's how it's going to go down. And it's so fascinating. This is pre-crucifixion. The most horrific death ever by death experts. And he's already talking about what's, what's going to happen on the other side of things. King of kings and Lord of lords, judge, Messiah, son of man. This is how it's going to be. This is, this is good. This is great. That, that, that anger or whatever it is we feel against Caiaphas, even though he were, he was special. You say, oh, oh this is good. He's getting put in his place. And, and, It helps us to see whose side we'd want to be on. I keep referencing Daniel 7, uh, week in and week out. I'll just go ahead and at least read it now. This is verses 13 and 14. I kept looking. This is the prophecy of this undertaking. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came to the ancient of days, 
the power in our text and was presented before him and to him was given dominion. That's kingdom talk, reign, rule, judgment talk, glory, same kind of thing, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. That's the one who's going to be crucified because he's not, he's not going to stay dead. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Psalm 110 verse 1 similarly says, the Lord says to my Lord, how about that? How does that happen? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool, footstool for your feet. You are going to try me. You are going to find me guilty. You are going to have me crucified. You are going to make sure that I'm dead. And let me tell you how it's going to go after that. In fact, let me tell you how all of this actually is wrapped up in the purpose and plan of God for redeeming sinners via the Passover lamb. New covenant reality in my blood. Ta-da! Just... We, we know how it all ends, but Jesus is already talking about how it all ends. It's masterful. This kangaroo court is a joke, but Jesus is not. Now, just in case we think Jesus had a problem being clear, like some people seem to think, well, I wonder what he meant by all this. Surely he wasn't offensive in anything he did. Well, let's keep reading. How about verse 65? Then the high priest tore his robes. Old Testament precedent, when you, when you hear someone say something horrific and awful, even symbolic, you, symbolically, you, you express yourself this way. The high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. And if you utter blasphemy against the Lord, according to Leviticus 24, then it means, I'm quoting verse 16, surely you'll be put to death. Jesus is clear about who he is, what he claims, so that when the high priest hears him, he knows how to respond. Good for us to see that. Now he knows he can have him killed because he's spoken something blasphemous. Now, it would be blasphemous if Jesus were just some guy from Nazareth who grew up there because he'll be crucified and that'll be that. But if he's raised from the dead, he can rule and reign forever and that will be that. And so it's not blasphemous. Oh, I have more notes than we have time. Maybe think in terms of our day, when we like to say things like, well, to me, Jesus is. Well, to me, God is. To me, Jesus would. And I like to say, well, thank you for telling us about yourself. Maybe now we should talk about who Jesus is, but I digress. A little snark. It's not altogether different from what was happening with the Jewish religious leaders in the first century. Because in effect, this is who Messiah is to us. They never were so 
juvenile as we are, it seems, in the 21st century, perhaps, I guess, I'm guessing, to say, to me, Messiah is. To me, Messiah is. To me, Messiah is. But that's how they're acting. And when they meet the real Messiah, they say, what can we trump up against him to have him executed? Because he doesn't match what we've designed in our own hearts. It's not a good thing. It's a terrible thing. And Jesus is so clear about who he actually is that we need to remember that. Okay, let's move on. Editing notes. Verse 65 goes on to say, what further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. Blasphemy, lying against God, lying against the things of God. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. How about that? He deserves death. The righteous, the upholder of God's law, the sinless one, deserves death. It's a contradiction in terms. If anyone doesn't deserve death, it's him. It's absolutely him. Then verse 67 says, Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him. Mark's account says he's blindfolded. And then they say in verse 68, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So they've, they're assaulting, assaulting him on all levels. He came to his own and his own received him not. Okay, for the sake of time, we're going to do the second tragic scene, begging us to put our confidence in Jesus rather than elsewhere. And it's Peter's denials. And you'll want to pay close attention because we're going to go really fast. Don't miss it. Verse 69 says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. 71, and when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. I promise. I swear. 73, after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. You sound like a northerner. Less educated, blue-collar from Galilee. Verse 74 says, Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. So now it's damn me if I'm lying kind of stuff. It escalates. I do not know the man. And immediately the the rooster crowed. 75 says, And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, back in verse 34, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. got one more text to reference. You don't need to turn there, but by way of conclusion, all of this should help us. These two tragic scenes should help us, should beg of us. You can't trust the system. Even if it's the right system, you don't trust the system. You've got all of the Jewish authorities and they become corrupt and perverse and even to the point of the high priest. And so you see the emptiness of the whole thing. Their whole sole purpose was to point to Messiah, and they're not. So don't trust in them. Trust in Messiah. Only he can save his people from their sins. Back to 121. Not the system of Judaism, which was the right system with the right book. 
Then also, second scene, tragic scene, you've got the most, I, I think I would be willing to wager, the most faithful disciple left. He's the one who's there. And he's not faithful. Even the most faithful. Which also begs me to not trust in the leaders, either even the best leaders. The most faithful leaders. Their whole job is to point you to the one and only one who's going to be faithful. Not to themselves. It has to be the takeaway. There's only one standing faithful in his name is Jesus. By way of conclusion, have you ever thought about what the difference is between Peter and Judas? I know some of you have. So don't give away the answer. But it's a fascinating thing to think about right now and right here in light of what we've just seen. I think there's one major difference. There's more than one, but just for the sake of this illustration, I have good enough theology to know there's other reasons. But there's, there's one big standout in the gospel accounts. And in Luke 22, the one standout difference between Judas and Peter is Jesus. And Jesus prayed for Peter. Otherwise, Peter is just another Judas. Point being, you don't trust in Peter's or any other people. You've got to trust in the one who promises to pray for his people because he and he alone is the resurrected, ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, always living, the Bible says, and therefore able to make intercession prayer for his people. Well, don't take my word for it. It does say in Luke chapter 22, parallel account to our account, verse 32, but I have prayed for you. Satan demanded to have you, a lot like Judas, but I have prayed for you. And he goes on to talk about, therefore, when all of the, the, the dust settles, my paraphrase, you, Peter, will be able to strengthen the brothers, your peers, fellow believers by pointing them to me begs us to trust in Christ begs us to trust in Christ father thank you so much for this morning thank you for the fact that you promised to build your church and that nothing could stop it even death and we know that that's true because you died lord jesus and that you were raised victorious and therefore, there will be success and there will be promotion and protection of the gospel. Lord, our cry to you is we want to be a part of it. We want to be men and women and boys and girls who are those who trust in Christ and those who point other, others to trust in Christ. May the world be different as a result for the glory of your name. Amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.